Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. <laughs> I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting my podcast. When hiring gets hard, that's when you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in just one place, even interviewing. So if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Offer is valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I am recording this podcast at around 11 a.m. here in Switzerland, and that means it's only 5 a.m. back in New York. So we still have several hours before the stock market opens but i'm already looking at how the futures are trading and as i am recording dow futures are now off about 400 points so it looks like the market is off to a rough start in fact if you look at all of the markets you can see that right now it is risk off as everybody is selling the riskier assets and buying what they perceive to be a safer haven. You can really see that in the foreign exchange market. The dollar today is down solidly against the euro, the Japanese yen in particular, and the Swiss franc. I think that's where you're seeing the biggest move down is against the franc. Obviously, that's going to make my time in Switzerland a little bit more expensive. But look at what's happening with the Australian dollar. It's down solidly. Canadian dollar, same story. These are the currencies associated with economic growth, with commodities. Those are the currencies that are being sold. Meanwhile, look at gold is rallying earlier this morning. Gold was down about six, seven bucks. As I'm recording, it's now up around $8, a total reversal for gold. In fact, now we're up at around $1,810. So this is about the high gold is traded since it started to rebound from its most recent correction. By the way, Bitcoin not getting any buying, it is actually sinking as expected as far as I'm concerned with all of the other risk assets. It is going down, Bitcoin trading at around 32,500, off about 1,500 or so from where it was yesterday during US stock market hours. So again, Bitcoin, a risky asset, being sold along with other risky assets, whereas gold, a safe haven risk-off asset, is being bought as investors are looking for safer havens. Same thing in the treasury bond market, where yields continue to fall. Yields were down quite a bit yesterday as well, and they continue uh, to move lower, meaning bond prices moving higher, so people, again, are seeking out safety in the perception of safety in U.S. Treasury markets. But what is the catalyst now 
for all of this selling of risky assets and the desire to now take refuge in what people believe to be safe havens. And I think it has to do with two factors, but really these two factors reflect the sentiment that has really been building in the markets for some time now. And that is that the pickup in inflation is not really transitory. It's more of a lasting, enduring increase that is going to require Fed action and that the Fed is going to have to be raising interest rates a lot sooner than the markets have been expecting. And in fact, we've already been seeing that narrative play out even before yesterday with strength in the dollar, with a contraction in the yield curve, a tightening where the short rates were rising and the long rates were falling. The rotation out of a lot of the cyclical inflation-sensitive stocks that people were buying back into the NASDAQ-type stocks. In fact, even yesterday, the NASDAQ, I think, made a new all-time record high as investors started to buy the high-priced momentum stocks that thrive in the environment where interest rates stay low, inflation stays low, but economic growth is also low. So the cost of foregoing current income by gambling on future income is much lower and therefore the impetus to invest in these speculative growth stocks is greater. So all that had been unwound or was in the process of being unwound. But I think that process is now being accelerated. A couple of things that happened yesterday that I think are getting investors to be particularly cautious about the future. Number one was statements earlier in the morning or a statement that came out. And this was from the chief economist at the IMF. And what she came out and warned about was that she thought that the continued fiscal policy in the U.S., and obviously the monetary policy that goes along with it, that it threatened to cause the pickup in inflation to be sustained. And this is really the first time now that I've heard the IMF publicly express some concerns that the uptick in inflation is going to be sustained. Because up until yesterday, they were still talking about inflation being transitory. They were very much on the same page as the Federal Reserve in reassuring the markets not to worry about what we were seeing with prices because all of these price gains were transitory, that they were simply the function of the economy reopening, which was a one-off event. And once it reopened, things were going to go back to normal. Now, Recently, they have began slightly tweaking that by admitting that, well, yes, inflation is transitory, but this transition may take longer than we thought, meaning that these higher prices will be here a little longer before they go away. But it's still going to be transitory, even if the transitory period is somewhat longer than what we originally expected, and even if the increase in prices may be a little higher than we expected. It's all okay. It's all good because everything's going to go away. It's transitory. Don't worry about it. Now they are talking about a sustained increase in inflation. And there's a big difference because if inflation is not transitory, if it's sustained, well, everybody expects the Fed to do something about it. If it's transitory, the Fed doesn't have to do anything because it takes care of itself. But if it's not transitory, now the Fed has to take action to reduce the rate of inflation. And that is what is spooking the markets. The markets are worried about the Fed taking action. And in fact, they're even more worried after the release of the FOMC minutes. And one of the things that is worrying the markets is that the minutes do reveal that members are actually talking about tapering. Right? Not necessarily raising rates, although maybe they're talking about that too, but they're talking about tapering. Now, that actually represents a de facto tightening of monetary policy because in the past, they were just talking about talking about tapering, which of course was a tightening because before they were talking about talking about tapering, they weren't even thinking about thinking about thinking about 
doing it. Now, obviously, they must have thought about it because they went from not even thinking about thinking about it to talking about talking about it. So we jumped over thinking about it, went right to talking about talking about it. But now, apparently, they're talking about it. And so this is really scaring the markets because, okay, they're now having to talk. That means we're that much closer to the Fed walking the walk when it comes to hiking rates. But if you actually pay close attention to what's inside those minutes, even though they are now talking about tapering, what they're talking about is the fact that they're not going to do it, right? What they're saying is that, yes, we're talking about tapering, but the conditions that would result in a taper have not yet been met, right? And they don't actually lay out what those conditions are. All they do is admit that whatever they are, they haven't been met. And I don't think they're ever going to lay out the conditions because I don't think there's any condition that would actually result in a taper. So they don't want to pin themselves into a corner by actually saying what it is that would cause us to taper because when those things happen, if they happen, and then the markets expect a taper and they don't get it, well, you know, they lose some credibility. So they're never going to admit what the conditions are. All they will acknowledge is that whatever they are, they don't exist, so don't worry. And then also in the minutes, what the Fed officials are saying is when the conditions are finally met, whatever these unknown conditions are, but when they're met and we decide that it's time to taper, we're not going to just do it. We're going to give the markets ample advance warning. Now, again, they don't really define like how much advance warning do they get? Is it, you know, a week, a month, a quarter, a year? We don't really know. But what the Fed is saying is when they do finally decide that the conditions that would merit tapering are warranted, they will make sure they clearly warn the markets in advance that they're going to taper. And remember, tapering is not shrinking the money supply. Tapering is expanding the money supply at a slower rate than you were expanding it before. They're not talking about stopping the debt monetization, going cold turkey, and they're certainly not talking about shrinking the money supply. They're simply talking about inflating the money supply at a somewhat lower pace than they're inflating it right now. But what this should really reveal to anybody who's got a brain is that they ain't going to taper. Because if they were serious about having to fight inflation, and if inflation all of a sudden picked up, they would not wait to warn the markets that they're going to taper in the future because inflation might get worse between the warning and the time they actually start to do something about it. So to the extent that the data would suggest that inflation is not transitory or something else is happening and now it merits action, you have to act. You just can't delay the action because you want to warn the markets about what you're going to do. You need to do it. And in fact, they wouldn't just be talking about tapering. They would be talking about ending the QE program. Because if all you're willing to do is taper it, that's not going to be enough to actually deal with an inflation problem. Because you're still adding to the problem when you're expanding the balance sheet. Even if you're adding to the problem more slowly, you are still fueling the fire. Even if you're throwing on less fuel, you're still giving the fire more fuel and it's going to get bigger. So they're not even talking about what would actually be required to the extent that inflation was too high. Because I think they recognize that there's no way the markets could handle something like that. So they're trying to give the markets a little bit of tightening, but not too much to really scare them. And in fact, I think that is why they even might have established this whole idea that we're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates so they can start thinking about it and have the markets interpret that as some kind of tightening without actually raising rates. Because the one thing the Fed doesn't want to do is have rates go up, but it can't admit that it's never going to raise them. So it's trying to have its cake and eat it too, by tightening without actually tightening. And they do that by just talking about tightening, but not actually tightening. But the problem for the Fed is when they talk about tightening, the markets think they're serious. And so the markets start tightening for the Fed. Rates start rising in the private sector, which we're already seeing monetary conditions tighten because the markets still believe the Fed, right? It's like the Fed is this boy that cries wolf 
And every time the Fed cries wolf, the villagers come running because they actually expect the wolf. They still don't realize that it doesn't matter how many times the Fed cries wolf, there's never going to be a wolf. So they can talk about, they can think about, they can do whatever they want about tapering and about raising rates, but they really can't do it. And of course, the greater problem is, and what people don't seem to recognize, is the longer the Fed waits to taper, the harder it actually is to taper. The longer they wait to raise rates, the more difficult it is to do it. So if they can't do those things now, how are they going to do them in the future when it's even harder? Because the longer they wait, the more debt we have. The more debt we have, the more vulnerable we are when rates go up, right? The more debt the government has, the bigger the national debt, the larger the Fed's balance sheet, the more the Treasury becomes dependent on the Fed to finance that debt. So if they can't taper now, how the hell are they going to do it in the future? they can't raise rates now, how are they going to do it in the future? They can't. In fact, what's actually happening in the markets is the markets are now bracing for the wrong impact. They don't understand what's going to happen. Because just like the IMF chief economist is concerned, she said that because inflation is going to surprise the Fed by being higher than they thought or by not being transitory, she is warning that this could have a negative impact on the global economy because the Fed is then going to be raising interest rates much sooner than the markets expect. And she talked about how this would be bad, particularly for emerging markets, because it's going to cause the dollar to go up. It's going to put pressure on commodities. It's going to hurt the emerging markets. And so the recovery that we're seeing around the world is actually in jeopardy now because the Fed is going to be forced to admit it was wrong about inflation and start fighting it by raising rates. And that is what the markets are now pricing in. They're pricing in higher rates sooner, which is going to hurt the economy, reduce growth, which is why people are taking risk off, which is why stocks are under pressure, particularly the cyclical stocks. We're even seeing oil stocks have been coming down. We did get a pretty big reversal the other day after we took out that high and almost made a seven-year high in the price of oil. We've got some selling that has continued, but oil stocks really were selling off even before uh, the price of oil reversed. Again, I don't think this is a change in the underlying trend for oil. I think oil prices are still moving higher. They're going to make new highs. They have not finished. This bull market is a long way from ending. But one of the reasons that these stocks are coming down in the sector is because people think the economy is going to be weaker as a result of the Fed having to fight inflation that it believed was transitory But now that it happens to not be transitory, now the Fed has to start tightening. Well, the fact of the matter is, I don't even think the Fed ever believed inflation was transitory. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not that dumb. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I think that they knew they had an inflation problem, but the bigger problem is that they can't do anything about it and they're never going to admit that. So the easiest way to rationalize their policy of not caring about inflation and ignoring it was to pretend that it is transitory. So I don't think the Fed is going to be surprised when it turns out that it's not transitory. I think they already know that. And I think the reality is if the Fed actually had the ability or the willingness to fight inflation, which is what the markets are now bracing for, which is what the IMF is now expecting, if the Fed actually was willing to do what it took to fight inflation. They would already be doing it. They would be fighting that battle right now before it gets even harder. Because again, the longer they wait to start the fight, the harder it is to win because they let inflation get worse. They let the genie further out of the bottle. So the further the Fed falls behind the curve, the harder it's going to be to get ahead of the curve, which is what they need to do to put that genie back in the bottle. So what the markets don't understand And I don't know when they're going to figure it out. I mean, maybe gold going up 
today, although it's not way up, but maybe it's starting to dawn on some people. It's not that inflation is going to turn out to be not transitory and therefore the Fed is going to fight it. It's that inflation is not transitory and the Fed is not going to fight it. And because the Fed is not going to fight the non-transitory inflation, it's actually going to end up getting much worse than people think. And the reason that they're not going to fight inflation in the future is the same reason they're not fighting it now, because they can't do it without collapsing the economy. They can't do it without crashing the stock market, crashing the housing market, and forcing the U.S. government to dramatically cut spending or raise taxes on the middle class, two things that it is completely reluctant to do. So since the Federal Reserve wants no part of any bitter tasting medicine, even if ultimately it cures what ails us, they're not going to fight inflation in the future. They're not going to fight inflation now. They're never going to fight inflation. But also, not only is inflation going to be much worse than everybody thinks, the economy is actually going to be weaker. Yes, people are factoring in a softer recovery because they assume the Fed raising interest rates will slow the economy. What they don't realize is that inflation itself is going to not only slow the economy, but potentially push it into recession. But to prevent that from happening, the Fed is going to ease further. So rather than tapping on the brakes, which is what everybody is bracing for, they're going to slam on the gas. They're going to put the monetary pedal to the metal, ignoring all the signs of inflation because they're worried about the economy. And the worries about the economy trump the worries about inflation. See, when it comes to the dual mandate, inflation always takes a backseat to jobs and the economy, and the Fed is going to admit that. And when it does, investors are going to have to come at this trade from a whole new perspective. They're going to be dumping U.S. dollars, they'll be dumping long-term treasuries, and they'll be buying gold and silver. And in fact, one place that you can also see the fears in the market about the Fed having to fight inflation sooner than people expect and the negative impact that such a fight would have on the economy is in the reverse repo market. A lot of people have been emailing me or commenting on my videos asking me to comment on what's going on in the reverse repo market. Because if you recall, something similar happened, I think, back in 2019, when you saw a spike in interest rates that was a result of what was going on with these repurchase agreements. And that resulted in the Federal Reserve stepping up QE again in order to artificially suppress interest rates that were rising in the market. Well, the same thing is happening now with these reverse repos, what's going on is a lot of the big institutions that own a lot of short-term debt, let's say money market funds that have a lot of money invested in very short-term paper, they are deciding that they want more of that paper in U.S. treasuries as opposed to in commercial paper or other liabilities of, let's say, uh, the banking sector that are not direct liabilities of the Fed. Now, why is that? Well, because they want to take less risk. If you're loaning money to a private corporation or a bank, obviously you have the risk of default. You don't have that risk in theory if you loan your money to the U.S. government and it's sitting in T-bills at the Federal Reserve. So what's happening is more and more of these money market portfolio managers are opting to reduce the risk of their portfolio by concentrating more money in treasuries. Now, why would they be doing that? Well, if they are looking for the economy to slow down because the Fed now has to start to tighten sooner, well, a slowing economy means companies have less revenue. Well, if companies have less revenue, maybe they can't afford to pay the debts that they've borrowed. And so in a weaker economy, you have a higher likelihood of default. And of course, if you're owning the paper and it went into default, well, that's a loss. So why not get rid of it? Now, normally, what would compensate a lender for the added default risk of holding, let's say, corporate commercial paper or financial paper issued by banks 
rather than holding T-bills is, well, you get more interest, right? You get an extra return for taking that additional risk. And even though there is a little bit of an extra return, it's not worth it. The yields are still so low that the incrementally higher yield that you get by taking some default risk isn't worth taking the risk. So everybody is saying, I'm just going to play it safe and I'm just going to put all this money over with the Fed. And so now the Fed is doing all these repo agreements, reverse repurchase agreements, because there's all this extra demand uh, for for treasuries over corporates or liabilities of uh, the banking sector. And this is a problem because it is taking reserves away from banks. It's taking funding away from the corporate sector, therefore putting upward pressure on rates in order to try to get that money back so that they could use it and lend it into the economy. And of course, as those spreads start to widen, that is a bigger problem for the economy, for the stock market. And again, what investors are missing is the Fed is not going to sit back and watch this happen. They are going to take action just like they did in 2019 to try to reverse this. So what do they have to do? They got to print more money. They got to get more money into the banking system to replace the money that's being sucked out because lenders are too afraid of defaults in a weakening economy and they expect the economy to weaken because they expect the Fed to raise rates. Well, the Fed needs to reverse those expectations. It seems obvious to me that the Fed now has to do damage control from the fact that it talked about tapering and it has to reassure people in even stronger terms that it ain't going to (laughs) happen and that it doesn't matter what's happening with prices. They're not going to contain it. Even if it isn't transitory, it's okay. Higher inflation is not that big a deal. In fact, that's what Janet Yellen has been saying. I talked about that on an earlier podcast. Janet Yellen used to be the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Right now, she's secretary of the Treasury, but she is now saying that more inflation is a good thing. If the result of our fiscal policy is that we have higher inflation, well, that's great. That's just a bonus. That's a twofer, right? We get to help the economy and we also get higher inflation. So the, she's saying inflation is a good thing. Is it a stretch that if the former Fed chairman can say inflation is a good thing, why can't the current Fed chairman say the same thing? Especially when that message is so self-serving because if they admit it's a problem, well, they have to do something about it. They can't do something about it. And that's the bigger problem. So you have to pretend. Right? I've used this analogy before and I forget who first said it. But if you're being run out of town, what do you do? You jump to the head of the line and pretend like you're leading the parade. Right? That's what they have to do. The Fed has to lead the inflation parade by pretending it's a good thing. But that is the beginning of the end of the dollar. Because once the markets realize this, and they should already realize it, I've realized it for a long time. That's why I've been getting out of the dollar. That's why I own gold. But when the markets finally come to terms with this reality, that's the beginning of the end, and you start to see the dollar implode and gold take off. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. You just attract then you interview, and then you hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all the hiring in one place, even your interviewing. So don't just hope your perfect candidate finds you. Find them with Indeed and use their hiring tools that help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, with Indeed Instant Match, you get a quality list of candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job ad. Indeed Instant Match helps you make a short list of great candidates fast. Plus, Indeed makes finding quality candidates even faster with 136 assessments to help make sure you find applicants that have the right skills. And best of all, you only pay for the applicants who meet your must-have qualifications. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
So get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. On a related note, I got more anecdotal evidence of the inflationary pressures throughout the economy in a message that one of my Instagram followers sent to me. Oh, and by the way, if you're not yet following me on Instagram, you should do it. I've only got a little over 77,000 followers, but I am utilizing the platform more often, and I intend to utilize it even more as I get more people following me. So certainly would be nice to get up to at least 100,000 followers on Instagram. Oh, by the way, I've noticed that quite a few of my Instagram followers are also able to keep track of what's happening with me here in Switzerland because they started following my wife's Instagram account. And uh, I've never actually really pointed out her account. So people are on their own doing a little bit of research and figuring out just which account belongs to her. But anyway, this particular Instagram follower sent me a message, which by the way, you know, I'm on there. I look at the messages. So it's another reason to follow me is you may get my attention and you may get me to reply to your message. But this guy sent me a copy of an email that his employer just sent out to the team warning them about a problem with prices. Now, this guy works for a company that sells display stuff for retailers, you know, like mannequins or shelves or different things that you would use to display your merchandise, you know, in your store to your customers. And all of the stuff that they sell is imported. I think most of it is coming in from China. And so the message that was sent, you know, to the troops from you know the people up top was that the container rates had just jumped by another $6,000 this week. So clearly they've been jumping in the past and now in the current week they've now added an additional $6,000 to the cost and obviously all of this is going to filter into what it costs on a per unit basis to import all this merchandise that they're then reselling to U.S. businesses. And obviously, too, if U.S. businesses are paying more money for this merchandise, well, you know, they need to charge higher prices to their customers in order to recoup these costs, or they simply go out of business because they can't afford it. But apparently, the bigger issue wasn't this $6,000 increase in the cost. It was the fact that even if they were willing to pay the cost, it didn't matter because there was no containers available. And so they couldn't actually import any of the stuff that they needed. And so the message that was sent out was, hey, we're not going to have any inventory. So we better start raising prices fast across the board on all the products on our website. Now, why do they have to do that? Well, because they can't replace what they sell. So they have to make do with what they've got, which means they have to get as much as they possibly can for each item that they sell because they have no idea when they're going to be able to replace it with more inventory. And again, this is the big problem that everybody wants to overlook when it comes to prices is that it takes two to tango. Everybody focuses on demand. Oh, well, if we have a recession, the demand is going to go down. Yes, but what happens when the supply goes down even faster than the demand? Because what sets prices is the relationship between supply and demand, not the absolute level. So if demand goes down, but supply goes down even more, prices go up. And that is stagflation. That's what everybody seems to overlook, that possibility. In fact, it's not just a possibility. It is a probability. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, it's a foregone conclusion. That is exactly what is going to happen. Supply is going to collapse. Demand's going to go down too, but prices are going to go through the roof. So to the extent that you need to buy something, you're going to have to pay a very, very high price for it because there's not going to be a lot of it to go around, particularly when we really start to see the dollar weaken. But, you know, another example of this whole dynamic working out with there not being enough supply is in the housing market, particularly 
entry-level homes, right? These are the homes that the first-time home buyer is going to buy. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that pointed out that the supply of entry-level homes, which I think it described as, you know, 1,400 square feet or less. So these are small homes, right? Two, three-bedroom homes, probably one-story homes. Uh, but they're the house that you buy when it's your first house. So you're younger, you don't have as much money, and so you buy one of these smaller homes. The supply of these homes is now at a 50-year low. And because there are so few starter homes available, the article was focusing on the fact that now more and more people, rather than buying new housing that was just produced, they're buying fixer-uppers, right? That's what they call in the Wall Street world, you know, you're buying a dump. You're buying a place that really needs a lot of work, and so you got to fix it up. And so it's a fixer-upper. And obviously, if it's a fixer-upper, you know, it's a lot less expensive than a house that you don't have to fix up. Because the problem with a fixer-upper isn't what it costs to buy it. It's what it costs to actually fix it up. And I think a lot of these first-time home buyers who are buying these fixer-uppers are underestimating just how expensive it's going to be to fix it up. And, you know, rather than these new homes, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, their dream ticket to home equity and, and, and wealth as homeowners, they could more likely turn out to be big fat money pits, right? Where money comes in and it never comes out, right? It's a constant drain on your wallet. And of course, as you're forced to spend more and more money on your house, you don't have money to buy other things. So as these first-time home buyers are sucked into these housing money pits, they're going to spend less money on everything else because whatever they have is going into their house. And you know, it's not just that inflation is making it more expensive to build these starter homes. It is also making it more expensive to fix them up. And so you're not getting around the fact that houses are more expensive because when you buy a brand new house, well, you don't have to fix the roof. You don't have to take care of a lot of these problems that you're going to have to take care of if you buy a house that's 20, 30 years old or more and has been neglected and is in disrepair and now it needs a lot of work. But, you know, one of the reasons, too, that you're not seeing the builders building these types of homes these starter homes, is that there's no margin there. It's very difficult to make money on these homes because there's certain fixed costs associated with building. And, you know, if you build a 3,000 square foot house, it's not double the cost of a 1,500 square foot house. So it's easier for the builders to make money on the more expensive home than it is on these starter homes where they still have to overcome a lot of these fixed costs. And of course, you know, you've got government permitting and a lot of other stuff that, you know, probably is the same, you know, for larger homes. But it's the first time home buyer, their budgets are very tight. They don't have the flexibility to pay the extra money because they're barely covering it now. I mean, they're, they're so dependent. One of the only things that's keeping these guys in the market is how low the mortgage rates are. They don't have down payments, right? Because they're young and they haven't saved. And the problem with these first-time home buyers is that they don't have a trader home, right? The guys that are buying their second home or their third home, they generally can cover the down payment with the sale of the home that they already own. They just roll the equity into the down payment in the new property. But if you don't own a home and you have no equity, well, you have to come up with cash. Well, how are you going to come up with cash if you don't have any? And a lot of people, don't. not only don't they have cash, they owe money. They have credit card debt. They have an auto loan, right? They have a student loan. So the first time home buyers are in really bad shape financially, which is why the age keeps going up now. I think over the last decade, the age has gone up for the first time somebody buys a home. I think it was 30 years old and now it's up to 33. People need to wait longer because it takes them longer to be able to save up the money. And, and now it's going to take them even longer because there's so few properties on the market because they haven't been built. And again, that comes back to the supply problem. We don't have the supply. A lot of people have lots of money now because the government is printing it and handing it out. And the government is making it very easy to borrow the money you don't have by keeping rates really low. But what that doesn't do is magically create properties for people to buy. 
So there aren't new properties being built. So what happens with all that new money? It simply bids up the prices of the homes that have already been built and it's gonna cost even more to fix up the ones that are in disrepair because inflation is driving up the cost of all the materials and labor that would be necessary to fix up these properties. Now, and finally too, I wanted to talk a little bit about Bitcoin again, because to me, it seems like Bitcoin is really on the verge of another breakdown. You know, we got below 30,000 back in June and the initial dip below 30,000 was met by massive buying, right? There are a lot of people that realized how significant that support level was. And so they pulled out all the stops and all the big dip buyers came out and they bought that dip below 30,000 and they managed to get the market to rally maybe up to 35,000, 36,000. The most significant part about that rally is where it failed. I mean, we never even got back up to 40,000, I don't think, or let alone 42,000, which was the key uh, resistance. And as I am recording again, we're around 32,500, 32,600. The bigger issue to me is the technical pattern because we are carving out the right shoulder of this ominous head and shoulders top pattern, which if you actually go to the textbooks, it projects a move down to zero, actually negative, but obviously that can't happen. But it's clear to me that given the enormity of this head and shoulders, that I think the risk is very great, regardless of where Bitcoin ends up going in the long run, that in the short run, we could have a huge washout, a big crash that takes the cryptocurrency sub 10,000. I mean, looking at a chart, it's kind of hard to argue that a crash below 10,000 is not impossible. In fact, it's not only not impossible, it's, it seems like it's got a pretty good probability of happening, especially given the degree of leverage that exists right now in Bitcoin. Because if we get that kind of crash, once Bitcoin goes below 20,000, I think that's going to cause massive forced liquidation, forced sales at the market of leveraged coins, and it's just going to exacerbate the move. And remember, there are no circuit breakers in Bitcoin. It's not like the New York Stock Exchange or it's not like a futures contract where there's a limit move and then, you know, it's lock limit and we close for the day and, you know, people have a chance to rethink things and, you know, uh, and, and maybe some of the panic subsides during the time where the market is suspended. None of that happens with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is going to trade. And so if it is crashing, there's no one that's going to stop it from crashing other than new buyers coming in. But if those buyers don't want to come in, if they get out of the way, uh, then the market just falls through uh, a bottomless pit and you have tremendous downside. Now, I know there are a lot of these Bitcoiners are out there. Whenever I raise this possibility, let's say on Twitter, of Bitcoin going to 10,000, they all say, oh, this is great. I, I hope it happens. I can't wait. I can stack more sats, right? I can, I can buy more, right? Everybody is saying that they want Bitcoin to go to 10,000 so they can buy more. The question is, when it goes down to 10,000, how many people will really want to buy more? Sure, it's easy to say you want to buy more if it goes to 10,000 when it's at 33,000. But when it's actually at 10,000, a lot of the people that were excited about buying 10,000 when it was at 30,000, suddenly they're not so excited at 10,000 when it's got the possibility of going to 5,000. So it's easy to be brave when there's nothing scary in front of you. But believe me, when Bitcoin has just crashed to 10,000, a lot of people who were brave now ain't gonna be so brave at that point, right? It's like you're actually in the battle instead of just talking about how brave you're gonna be now you're in the battle and the guns are pointing at you and now all of a sudden you're not the hero that you thought you were. You're a little bit of a coward and I don't blame you. A lot of people are afraid to buy the dips. That's why not that many people do. But here's the more significant point that people are overlooking. Forget about the diehard crypto guys that are going to go down with the ship. Yeah, there are hodlers that if it goes down to 10,000, we'll buy more, assuming they're not, you know, uh, blown out because they're on margin, right? Those people aren't going to be able to buy more. They're going to be forced to sell the Bitcoin they have because they, they pledged it as collateral to buy more Bitcoin with money they didn't have. So they're completely washed out. But the hodlers that still have some dry powder, 
Yes, you know, some of those guys might buy some more Bitcoin at 10,000 or wherever it goes. But what about all this new institutional money that was supposed to be the driving factor to getting Bitcoin to 100,000 or a million, right? This was the mainstream adoption, uh, those guys. Because the way Bitcoin was sold to Wall Street, the way it was sold to the so-called CEOs of companies that were being encouraged to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet, the way it was sold to the hedge funds or high net worth investors, the big sales pitch, you know, when Bitcoin was over $50,000 a coin, the big sales pitch was, you know what, now that Bitcoin has gone mainstream, now that it's been embraced by the mainstream, by the media, by Wall Street, it's been de-risked, right? Because you have this widespread adoption. It's not like in the past where you had these major crashes. We don't have that kind of risk anymore because now you have a deep pool of buyers who are waiting to buy every dip. And so you have all this support, you know, beneath the market that didn't exist in the past before it became so mainstream and so widely adopted. And also there were a lot of people who were saying that the higher price of Bitcoin in and of itself de-risked the investment. They said that, hey, if you thought about buying Bitcoin early on, you know, when it was $100 or $1,000 or $10,000, it was really risky because it was so unknown. The price could have crashed. But now that it's $50,000 and everybody loves it and everybody agrees that it's gold 2.0, right? Well, now it's not that risky anymore because it's not going to have the same type of percentage declines from $50,000 as it had from 10,000. So you can take comfort, right? They were saying that the higher price actually means it's less risky. Well, if Bitcoin crashes to 10,000, it's obvious that all of that was BS. It was all just a sales pitch because a move from 65,000 down to 10,000 is an 85% crash, right? So how is that different from any other crash that Bitcoin had in the past before it was mainstream, before it was de-risked, it wasn't. So what that's going to prove is that buying Bitcoin is as risky as it's ever been. And that the fact that some institutions are now in there, some corporations are in there, whether it's Tesla or MicroStrategy, or whether you have some hedge funds in there, like Paul Tudor Jones, or maybe Ray Dalio admits that he's got a little, none of that matters. Because it's, it's every bit as risky as it was the day it was first invented, whatever it was 10, 11 years ago. And so that's all a bunch of nonsense. Well, that means that all these institutional buyers that were supposedly going to enter the market because it was no longer so risky, because it was a safe haven, well, they're gone. And they're not going to come back. The only people who are going to come back is the diehard Bitcoin maximalists who have been around since the beginning, but they're already all in. I mean, how much can they really bling to the party? I mean, yeah, some people think, oh, El Salvador. Yeah, how much purchasing power is El Salvador actually going to bring to the party, especially when El Salvador is supposed to replace China, right? China getting out is much bigger than El Salvador getting in. So there's all of this huge negative news on Bitcoin that is being ignored. Everybody just assumes, well, if we crash back down to 10,000, we're just going to go back up to 100,000. We're going to make new highs, just like it's done every time before, except it's different. It's not the same. You've already exhausted all those new institutional buyers. They ain't coming back. They're not going to say, oh, it's okay. It's still a great investment had we bought it 10 years ago. They're going to look at what a lousy investment it was if they bought it 10 months ago or whenever they bought it. But more importantly, the risk is going to be there and the ability of these Bitcoin pumpers to convince the world that it's no longer risky, that it's a safe haven. Well, that message is going to sell again. They're not going to be able to burn people with that a second time. And even if we get a rally off of 10,000 or 9,000 or 8,000, whether it spike lows to, doesn't matter because that rally is probably another bear market rally, another dead cat bounce. In fact, there's a strong likelihood that if we break to 10,000, we may never get back up to 20,000 again. Any rally above 15,000, if it gets that high, might be the new selling opportunity before we get the ultimate washout because 10,000 is still a very, very high price, pay for nothing. 
I mean, yes, it's a lot lower than 65,000, which was the peak price, but 10,000 is still a very high price relative to where it was. I mean, people were buying Bitcoin for a dollar. They were buying them for a penny. Then they were buying for a hundred dollars. So $10,000 is still a very, very high price to pay for a piece of air. And in fact, by the way, if you go to coinmarketcap.com, you'll notice now the supply of cryptocurrencies is almost 10,800, 10,790 to be exact. It wasn't that long ago. I forget, maybe a month or two that we first hit 10,000 cryptocurrencies. And now the supply is up another 8%. So it continues to grow. All of these cryptocurrencies compete with one another. Now, a lot of people try to say, well, none of them compete with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is in a class in and of itself, but that's not really true. I mean, maybe the Bitcoin maximalists can ignore all these other cryptocurrencies, but a lot of people can't. A lot of people, you know, they want a cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is just one of 10,790. There's a lot of competition in the crypto world. If somebody wants a cryptocurrency, they don't have to choose Bitcoin. There's all these other cryptocurrencies that they could buy. And a lot of people make the case that every one of these cryptos is better than Bitcoin. Now, the Bitcoin maximalists may want to ignore all that and say it's irrelevant, but it's not. You constantly have new competition by way of new coins being created. You don't have that with gold. You don't have that with silver. Yes, they compete with each other to the extent that somebody wants an inflation hedge and they want a precious metal. There's not that many precious metals around and they're not creating any new ones. There's just the ones that exist. I mean, you could buy platinum, you could buy palladium, maybe you want to buy rhodium or whatever, but the periodic table is fixed. God isn't creating any new elements the way man keeps creating new cryptocurrencies. So this supply keeps on growing and growing and growing, and the demand is just not going to be there. Again, we talked about supply and demand earlier. Well, in cryptocurrencies, it's going to work in the other direction. You're going to have this big increase in supply. In fact, you've already had this huge explosion of supply. What's going to happen when the demand goes away? Even if the supply stops growing and the demand implodes, well, the price is going to collapse. And that's exactly what's about to happen to Bitcoin. So again, if you're listening to my podcast and you got money in Bitcoin, and there are a lot of Bitcoiners who listen to my podcast, do yourself a favor and sell some Bitcoin. You don't have to sell it all. I'm not telling you to go cold turkey and own no Bitcoin, but at least sell some. Take your profits, step back. You'll be able to buy it cheaper. Don't worry. Even if you're right and Bitcoin does go to 100,000, there's a very good chance it's going to 20,000 or 10,000 first. So why not get in a position now, get some dry powder so that you could take advantage of that dip and don't put all the money in. So let's say you sell a bunch of Bitcoin now and the price gets cut in half. Just buy back the Bitcoin that you sold. Don't buy back more. Keep that extra cash in your pocket just in case I'm right and the price of Bitcoin keeps falling. You don't want to be all in because at the end of the day, if you've got all your chips on Bitcoin and then the dealer rolls a seven and you're crapped out, you've lost it all. So you've got to take money off the table and put it in your pocket. And if you're smart, the pocket you'll keep it in is gold or silver. You'll keep it in foreign dividend paying stocks. You'll keep it in real assets. You don't have to keep it in fiat currency because the bottom is going to drop out of that market too. So you want to own real things. You just don't want to make an all or nothing bet on Bitcoin.